Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. So how many, I I got a quick question for us, trivia question. Uh, Who can answer what happened here on Sunday morning, March 11th, 2018? Anybody gets this? You're the Gold Star UPCC member of the month. That's a big deal around here. Yeah. Shoot. He got it. He got it. Uh, Elders are not allowed to be Gold Star members. Okay, so it's management, okay? No. Uh, Yes, that's correct. So I know a lot of us don't even remember what happened last week. But all the way back in March 11, 2018, it's been 14 months, we started our journey through 1 Samuel together. The narrative of 1 Samuel has been a powerful one. We are now entering our our third leg here together this morning. So although, I just want to give a foundation as, we, as you walk through a narrative, okay, and, and you begin to, to teach it, um, we've taken some breaks along the way, obviously, for different holidays, for different uh, topical uh, preaching messages that we've done. But it's important in a narrative to understand the whole. And so I just want to quickly give an overview to kind of bring us up to speed um, into our passage. So although we're not sure of the exact author of 1 Samuel, it, it's most likely that Samuel and his contemporaries uh, gathered this historical account together and was put together um, as a final gathering of writings later in the 8th and 9th centuries by the kings of Judah. So the kingdom will split coming up here soon. Uh, and we have the accounts of Samuel and these writings coming together. But First Samuel really gives us a front row seat to the beginning of the kingship or the monarchy of Israel. This will serve as a pivotal moment in the unfolding of God's revelational history. It's huge um, in understanding Scripture. This is important things happening in God's redemptive story. You see, the kingship being established, the first king being Saul, is a fulfillment of prophecy all the way back from Genesis. Genesis 17 and 35 prophetically say that at some point there will be a king that will be established for the nation of Israel. It's also gives a looking ahead, a picture forward of the final king, Jesus Christ, the messianic king that is given all throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Psalms 2, 72, and 110. So the happenings and the things that are happening in this story are huge for just the redemptive story. The gospel is all throughout our teaching. So it's been six weeks since we ended 1 Samuel 20. So I'd like to just basically do, um, if you have your favorite TV show and they take a season break, they go, previously on... And then you put the name of your TV show in there, all right? So this morning we're going to do a little bit of previously on 1 Samuel. And we're going to go back and just hit some of the highlights that can put the story together for us this morning as we go through this. Um, We're beginning season three or the final leg, the third part of our journey together as we enter chapter two this morning. And there are ten chapters left in our story. And Lord willing, we will finish on July 28th. And if if we get there, we will get there. But just a, a final, uh, final path ahead is the next 10 chapters. And it's pretty consecutive. We're not taking any more breaks. 
So if you want to get back into it and immerse yourself, I would encourage you. I did this this week. It's just start in 1 Samuel. It's a narrative. It's, it's really easy reading. It'll take you literally a half hour. College students, 20 minutes, okay? Um, but just start from 1 Samuel 1, read through, um, even through to the end of 31. It'll just bring it all back. The stories that we've been um, touching on, the, the principles that we've had, just come flooding back as you're reading. I know we're not all here every week, so it'll put it together. So that's kind of a snapshot of where we've been, where we're going. Uh, but as I said, I just want to take a reminder tour uh, this morning, and I hope that God brings back uh, some of the, the things that God has taught you along the way as we've gone through this. I, I will encourage you this, this morning specifically, I know this is good every week, but to uh, really, it's, you're going to get a lot more out of it. We're going to be tracking through 1 Samuel, so I invite you to turn, open your Bibles, whether it's digital, um, a tablet, or the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And we're just going to basically move through 1 Samuel. I'm going to stop at certain points, and we're going to read a story that I believe is, is important to the overall happenings of the book. And we'll hit the key passage, characters, key themes, and application. Don't be afraid. We're not going through verse by verse, okay? Everyone take a deep, deep breath. So, Lord, uh, let's, let's go, let's just start right into it. So, first section that we really began with, 1 Samuel 1 to 4. And here we have the birth, youth, and call of the prophet Samuel. We're going to hit this in a second. The key passage is amazing because it starts with a praying mom. See how God started this whole story with a mom named Hannah. Key characters that we're going to see, Hannah, Samuel, and Eli in this first section, application, God is sovereign. God is constantly interacting with mankind to carry out his plans and his purposes for what he wants to accomplish. It's important for his purposes and his plans for what he wants to accomplish. And so I just want to invite you to turn to the key passage, 1 Samuel 1, and let's look at verse 21 together. And we see this amazing unfolding of this pretty much an unknown character, an unknown person in Scripture, and, and um, a woman named Hannah comes to the temple previously, and, and it's interesting, she's crying out to God, praying, God, give me a child. God, please, I, need, I want a child. You can, the emotion in her voice, she's, she's crying out to God, saying, Lord, please, open my womb. And, and Eli walks up to her and says, this woman must be drunk. It shows the intensity of her prayer with which she's crying out to God. But then what happens through this woman and, and her understanding of who God is? And that's the key. Hannah had an amazing understanding of who God was. And we see that in what is written. So verse 21. The man Elkanah, which is Samuel's dad, and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So let's make sure we follow through on what we promised God. Verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with, with her along with the three-year-old bowl and ephah of flour and the skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bowl and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord. As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For the child I prayed, and the Lord has grant for the, this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. What an amazing statement. And a prayer for every mom but parent in this room. We just we we prayed about how our kids can often become our idols. 
And there in this moment, Hannah says, as long as my child lives, he is yours, Lord. What a powerful picture. But then, that doesn't even reveal. That's just the surface. Then we get a glimpse into the theology of Hannah. What does she really think and view God like? And this is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. You want to talk about um, bedside hospital passage. You want to talk about the most difficult challenges of life. Whatever you're wrestling with, these are powerful words. And here's what Hannah says in her prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, chapter 2, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children in forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. I'm going to talk about the so- her, this is her view of God. This is the sovereignty of God right here in this moment. Listen to these verses. Chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Picture that. Everybody got that space from the, like, look at it from space. You know that famous picture of the earth just dangling out there in in darkness? Then read that verse again. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Wow. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in the heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the, boys, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. God is sovereign. It's one of the key things we've seen throughout 1 Samuel. His plans, he's all-knowing. His plans and his purposes will be fulfilled. It's one of the most important things we can understand as believers Uh, As individuals, is that God is sovereign. His plans and purposes work together for his glory and not for necessarily our glory. Along the way, he pours out a lot of grace in our lives. But ultimately, his plans, his purposes will be fulfilled. And so he introduces Samuel, one of the great leaders in history. Samuel was a servant leader and a political stabilizer for the nation of Israel in great transition. Samuel will be the mouthpiece for God in a nation in a critical moment. You see, great leaders rise to the challenge in the greatest moments of need. And that's where God inserts Samuel into history. Samuel is often a lonely figure. You know why he's lonely? Because he's speaking on behalf of God. He's lonely on the world standards. A lot of times he's a lone voice crying out saying, hey, here's what God wills, here's what God wants. And it's like white noise. That gets really old really fast. But that's Samuel and the calling that God had on his life. Part two, 1 Samuel 4 through 7. See, we're already at chapter 7. We're doing good. The next three chapters shifted our focus from Samuel to the Ark of the Covenant. This is called the Ark Narrative. Key characters, God, Philistine, Samuel. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about God being supreme. The supremacy of who God is. God is about God's glory and our lives have only one purpose. To bring God's glory. And so we see this. Through the Ark of the Covenant, where, that celebrate the power of Yahweh, God's Ark, and the symbol of the sacred covenant between God and Israel. There's other nations on earth at this point. 
But nothing is as unique as this covenant between God and the people of Israel where God comes down and is in their presence so that they can worship him. There's no king, there's no leader. God leads them like he led them across the sea, like oceans are parting, okay? Crazy things are happening. He's setting up his law, his system, and it's a unique thing on earth, and it's seen through the visual picture of the Ark of the Covenant. But what we learned as we went through 1 Samuel is that the Ark gave us the first glimpse into some of the heart-level issues of the nation of Israel and the individuals that lived in Israel. How do we see that? There's a rampant lack of respect for the power of God. It's seen in the ark. And what happens is, if you remember, they kind of treated the ark of the covenant like a genie where they could make a wish instead of God to be worshipped. There's a big difference, okay? Like instead of looking at this this. They where God dwells with us. It's a, it's a visual presence of God being with us. Let's worship. They turn it into, let's, let's, let's make a wish with this thing. And so they would take it out into battle and say, God, win the battle because we have the ark out here. And it was all selfishly motivated. And what they did, we talked about several stories where they're battling with the Philistines. And they just kind of treat this ark as like, ah, God, you're going to go do this because we're going to get lucky. You're going to come through for us in the moment, but we're not really going to worship you. Our heart issues are often revealed in our view of God and his power. Like if you ever just need to do a heart check, that's why, beautiful the songs we sang this morning, our view of God will reveal what we truly worship at the heart level. And then our heart will act on that and manifest itself as we worship different things other than God. And it was no different in Israel. So 1 Samuel 5, flipping right through, we're doing good. Flip right over, 1 Samuel 5, this is one of the cool stories that we read about. The Philistines capture the ark. They're like, we got this. Now we have the power of God in our hands, and we're going to defeat now this scary opponent, Israel. So we're going to put this ark in with Dagon and our other gods. And I don't remember if you hear the story. It's, like, it's almost like comical in some ways, the way God did this. But So they put them in. I won't read the whole chapter for sake of time. But they put the ark of the covenant next to their main god, Dagon. And the first morning, they come back in, open the doors, and Dagon's laying flat on the ground, face down, before the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this? Is it coming back? All right? Then they're like, oh, man, it must have been windy in here last night. Prop it back up. All right? Put it right back in the same spot. Open the doors. What is going on? Dagon's laying flat on the ground, decapitated, and the arms are off. Okay? You want to talk about God saying, hey, I'm superior, I'm supreme above any other God. Let me just show you this. And then you see the, the pain that comes to the, the towns that the Ark of the Covenant goes. It goes to one town. People get sick. They start to die. They're like, we got to get rid of this thing. They send it off to the next town. People get sick. They die. And here God is just displaying his glory saying, I will be worshipped. I will be worshipped. There's nothing you can do. I am supreme above all. And we see this powerful story. John Piper, a great quote. Because this is one of the strange things to understand about God. Um, because God, like when I put there that God is about God's glory, when we, when we put that on the earthly human level and we say people are about the glory, usually people act out and say that they want glory because it's their insecurities. They cover their insecurities with um, their, their, I'm great, right? That's how we do it. It's, a, it's our, our mechanism by covering our, our insecurities. But God doesn't have any insecurities. So what does it really mean that God is about God's glory? Is God therefore selfish? 
John Piper writes, God is the one being in the entire universe for whom self-centeredness and the pursuit of his own glory is ultimately a loving act. Is ultimately a loving act. And I want to just direct, Isaiah 48, 11, is God basically saying this. He goes, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God says it himself. Like, I'm not giving my glory to another. So is God selfish? And I, I, if you're writing, if you're taking notes, or if you have your phone out, I would encourage you. I just want to send you because we can't spend, this is like, you could spend a whole semester in a seminary on this, like really understanding this, this concept. But John Piper writes an article, and it's called this, Is God for us or for himself? Is God for us or for himself? And this is such an important thing to understand as Christians because our view of God will dictate how we respond um, in moments of intense desperation, which we're going to see in a minute. It will dictate how we respond, our view of God. So real quick, I just want to read an excerpt from this, uh, this article, Is God for us and for himself? The answer that I want to try to persuade you is true, true is this. Because God is unique as the most glorious of all beings and totally self-sufficient, he must be for himself in order to be for us. If he were to abandon the goal of his own self-exaltation, we would be the losers. We would be the losers. His aim to bring praise to himself and his aim to bring pleasure to his people are one aim and stand, or they fall together. I think we will see this if we ask the following question. In view of God's infinity, admirable beauty, power, and wisdom, what would his love to a creature involve? If he's all those things, if God is infinite, he's beauty, he's powerful, he's wise, what would his love to a creature involve? Or to put it another way, what could God give us to enjoy that would show him most loving? There is only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself. Himself. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying, that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for our contemplation and fellowship. To complete us, God has to give us himself. And this was the beauty of this is seen in Ephesians 2.18. So God's intention in sending his son was this. He says that Christ came that we might have access in one spirit to the Father. That we might have access to the Father. So I know I went a little deep on you there. I hope you're tracking with me. But like God is about God's glory. And that's one of the amazing things that we can try to understand as Christians and study. I can't do a whole encompassing talk on that. But it's powerful stuff. Because we see when God is put in his rightful place, we see what happens. We, we witness this in 1 Samuel 7. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, and they set it up in its rightful place where the priests are, and there's this season, it says uh, in 1 Samuel 7, verses 2 and 3, it says, the ark returned to kirath Jerem and stayed there for 20 years. Then all the people of Israel, here's the direct quote, it says, they turned back to the Lord. There was this revival and repentance that took place after the ark has returned to Israel, and it's a beautiful picture of what happens in the human heart. Repentance happens in the human heart when we recognize God is who God is, and that He deserves all the glory, and that we have nothing to offer Him. We are broken before God. We have nothing to offer God in our own strength. And that's where the cross comes in, that we might have access through His blood to God the Father, to spend eternity with God the Father. And so that was one of the takeaways is God is supreme. God is about God's glory in our lives, and He has only one purpose to bring God glory. This is a great evangelistic tool. To, to share with people, like, what, what is your purpose? Why are you here? It really rocks them when you say, well, I'm here to bring God glory, and that's about it. It, it provides great discussion, um, especially for you college students who are on secular campuses. Go right at this. 
Like, what is the purpose of your life? And then bring it, bring the truth with, man, we're here for, to bring God glory because you're created by God in his image. And then go from there. All right. Flip to the wrong page. Next one. Next section. 1 Samuel 8 all the way through to today. We're here. We have arrived. I'm not, don't worry. Yeah, let's do this. We're going to do this. We got time. All right. So everyone go to 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. We're just going to fly through these highlights of basically what's happening now is the earthly king replaces the divine king. The people of Israel, this is what often happens. It's a great picture of us in our lives. God's doing things. We repent. We turn to him. And it says the people turned to the Lord for 20 years. And then their eyes began to wander. Look at that nation over there. They got that cool-looking guy, like a king, like someone real, someone that we can see. We want that too. I want someone that I can worship and, and, and bow down to and, and, like, have some identity in a person. And, the, and they begin to go that direction. They begin to demand a king. And Samuel's like, yeah, you don't want this. Trust me. This isn't going to be good. Kings, army, we got God fighting our battles right now. You want to bring a king into this with human wisdom and you want, to, like, you want your sons to go to battle? You want pillage that comes along with war and the different things when a kingdom is set up? And they're like, yes, because sin is deceitful. And it looks so promising and so nice and so good. So here's the key passages, 8, 4 to 7. Let's read this uh, together. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. Who gathered together? The elders. So the leaders gathered together. And what did they say? They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old. Wow, that's nice. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, uh, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. This is important. But they have rejected me. They have rejected me. All that God did for them, they turn and reject. First Samuel 9 verses 1 and 2. Might be on the same page. If you need to flip, let's go there. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Saul is chosen to be king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, and a lot of other names. Verse 2. And he was the son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he, for his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Isn't it interesting that man chose the man that had the best of everything? He was the good-looking one. He was a stud. On the, on the outside, he was everything they wanted. And we want him to impress the other nations. And so they choose this king to be their king. So Israel asked for a king. Look at 10, 21, and 22. The irony. Oh, the irony. 10, 21 to 22. So they're back, they're getting ready to, like, this is the big, you know, uh, we just had a royal baby born. What's the baby's name? Archie. Okay, Archie, all right. Um, so Archie's born. So every time, you know, the, the royals come back up in the news and all that. But you, you know how big a coronation is in England. Like Queen Elizabeth, she might live forever. She might outlive all of us. You know, she just keeps going and going and going. Charles is really mad about it. You can tell. Every time he looks angry. Okay, his mom keeps living. I want to be king, you know. But so we have this thing where the king uh, comes on the scene. And here is the great coronation moment. And we go to verse 21. And it says, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the matriarchs. So they gather everyone together. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Saul, Saul wins the lot. He's chosen the one. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again, O Lord, is there still a man? Is, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. 
Wow, what a great moment. Here he is, it's his coronation. They go to declare him, this is our king. This is the one we're proud of, and this is the one we've chosen. We want this. Saul. Saul, where are you? He's hiding in the bags. What a picture of when we choose to go our own way and our own plan, and God's plan is kind of put off to the side, things go downhill really fast. 1 Samuel 12, flip a few pages over. We're almost here, folks. We're almost here. 1 Samuel 12, verse 24. And this is Samuel's fades from the scene. He kind of becomes a lesser character now in our story. Um, he's becoming less and less. We don't see him as much. But here, here's his closing words to the people. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, so shall you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And what a, what a lonely but powerful message. Samuel's fading from the scene, but he still speaks truth. You want to talk about love for a nation? Samuel loved these people and knew that the path they were on was going to be destructive. 1 Samuel 13, 22. Let's, let's just check in back with uh, Saul, see how he's doing. 1 Samuel 13, 22. Really setting up the kingdom well here. They're going into battle. and They're ready for the war. In verse 22 it says, So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the, in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out in the pass of Michmash. Basically, he's setting up his kingdom. And uh, because of the Philistines aren't afraid of Saul and he isn't doing anything, they basically take all the weapons. And so the battle comes and there's no weapons in hand. I mean, this is, this is the track record. And you begin, as fast as Saul rises to power, you begin to see the fall of his kingdom. Then 1 Samuel 16.31. 1 Samuel 16.31, we see Saul's fall and David's rise. When the words of David that spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight for the Philistine. And, and here you begin to see there's, there's this comparison going on in the kingdom where David is now taking the place. Even though he's not the rightful king, he's beginning to transition and take the place of Saul. And what greater scene of that than what? He fights this giant named who? Goliath. And the people begin to exclaim, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his what? Ten thousands. And we see, it's not a good thing if you're not the king, and people start doing that. You got to get out of Dodge quick. And then we went through the stories of Saul and Jonathan and Saul trying to kill David and all the confusion there that's taking place in that moment. What, do we, what was the application from this section? What did we see happen and unfold? If you can flip to the next slide, please. We see the application from this section um, is this. God is steadfast. God remains faithful to Israel despite constant rejection. So not only is he sovereign, not only is he supreme, but he's steadfast. And this is an amazing promise that we have as we sit here this morning. There's times in my life when I've turned my back on God, but I know that he's remained faithful and steadfast in his pursuit of me. And it's a beautiful picture here of the steadfast love that God has for his people, Israel, even through constant rejection. So we made it. Chapter 21, and this is where we come into our passage this morning. We're not going to spend a lot of time um, here. It's only going to be a few minutes because it's going to kind of move into next week as well when Pastor John brings the next section. So I just want to just really hit 
just a quick couple things here. We find David, okay, so David has to flee. Jonathan goes back to do his, uh, he's the son of the king, to do his thing. And David's kind of just left there standing. This would be like the moment in the movie where the sad music plays. And there's like every camera angle seeing David's expression where he's just like, he has no purpose. He's like, where do I go? He goes to different places to try to seek help. He goes to Samuel. Samuel's like, we can't protect you. He goes here, he goes here, he goes here. Until finally in our passage, verse 1, follow along with me. It says, then David came to Nob. That would be a cool place to live. I live in Nob, okay. Then David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest. And Abimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone? Remember, David is the general of Saul's army still at this point. Like communication didn't travel like it used to. So like, why is a general walking towards me? Never a good sign. That's scary, okay? Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Abimelech and the, the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter with which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So he's saying, basically, Saul has sent me on this mission. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread. I can't give you, like, bread from the store. All I have is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, uh, have the young men kept themselves from women? And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. Every day the priest would bake 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would be warm bread, and they would put it out on the altar as a picture um, of worship to God. And so the priest gave him the holy bread in verse 6. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be placed by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So back then in this culture, uh, sheep, and they would have an agrarian culture. This was literally the chief uh, shepherd for all of Saul's things. So he would manage the flocks for the kingdom. And I totally lost my spot. Then David said to Abimelech, uh, now a certain man of the servants was there. Then verse 8, then David said to Abimelech, then have you not uh, here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. From there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And he goes. If we could, uh, it is such a, an interesting thing to track with David. We are going to get a front row seat over the next few weeks to like just watching him mature in his faith. I think a lot of us can identify with David and some of the struggles that he faced, the hardships, um, the brokenness, the, the <laughs> Some of the sinful tendencies that he exhibited, like, wow, like, but God still was faithful in, in these and through these. But where we find David at this moment is one of the lowest moments of his life. And it's that of desperation. David was desperate. We see it here. He's asking for food. He's asking for a sword. Um, but what he does is he uses deceit and he lies. And the thing about this is it's like, oh, it's a simple lie. But we saw there that there was a, another person there the herdsman, the chief shepherd, who David's lie here, his sin, is going to have major, major ramifications in the chapters to come. Saul's going to find out about this. 
and he's going to come back and he's going to kill all the priests, like massacre. They're all dead. And we see here in this moment of desperation, I, I think it's so important to just kind of process where David's at in this moment as we, as we kind of go into the next chapters. Think about David's journey so far that we've seen. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. It's one verse. 1 Samuel 16, 12. Here we see David, the favored one. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for that is he. So not only was he favored, like the people didn't favor him. That's not what it's talking about there. God favored him. And he said, this is the one I want to be king. So he goes from this place of like God anoints him the next king of Israel. This is where he's coming from. Now, number two, we see David, the famous one. And this is the, the moment we just talked about. He kills Goliath, does all these amazing things. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. We see David, the famous one, popular. The people love him. But then we find him here. All he is is simply a fugitive on the run. I think this is a, just an interesting picture of so many believers. And just track with me for a second. I think a lot of us, uh, we feel this anointing, this call from God. God works in our lives in amazing calls us to himself. And we start doing amazing things for God. God uses us in powerful ways. We're impacting the kingdom. He's using us in our church. He's using us in our family. He's doing all these things through us by his power. But then maybe it's something major happens or maybe it's just, just a slow fade of different things. And we begin to kind of just like, feel disconnected from God. God, God when, when hard trials come, our faith is really tested in those moments. And here, David is feeling that in the most real way right now as a fugitive. His faith is being tested while he's on the run. Like, God, you anointed me for something great. You've used me in powerful ways in the past. Why is this circumstance happening in my life? Imagine the confusion and chaos in his mind right now. I don't know if you've ever been at this point or if you're going through this right now. But I would say that Probably all of us have been here, or, or you will be if you're young and haven't experienced just true trials and hardship, where you start asking the question, like, God, what is going on right now? I don't understand. Why is this happening? How did I get here? Why me? Why my family? Has anyone ever cried out to God like that in the, in the hardships of life, the, the challenges of life? 1 Peter 2, when you just... Boiled down, I think a lot of us um, have to understand that a lot of, this, is, this is the faith journey that God calls us to. It's not this like beautiful thing where God anoints us, saves us, anoints us with the power of the Holy Spirit. We go out and do amazing things and life is hunky-dory forever and ever. This is the calling that is on our lives. And it's both discouraging in some ways, but it's amazing. It's way more amazing than it is discouraging. Here's two verses I just want to share with you. First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers... To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. For our citizenship is not in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in our moments of desperation, is where we find David this morning, desperate. In our moments of desperation, two things are either going to happen. 
We're going to be completely and utterly defeated. We're just going to give up, lose it. Or we're going to just find our deliverance in those moments. Where we're like, this is, this is when God matters. This is when his supremacy, sovereignty, and the fact that he's steadfast comes into play. Is in this moment when you grasp who God is in your moments of desperation. For our citizenship is not in heaven. We eagerly wait for a savior. As much as uh, David dropped the ball here by using lies, and, and his sin had consequences. You could talk about the ethics of all of this, and it's actually, Jesus addresses it later. But we see a beautiful response in Psalm 52. And, and this, is, this is your take out the door with you today. I wanted to go there, but Psalm 52 is just an amazing glimpse into David's maturing in his faith. And I don't know about you, but I want to be maturing in my faith, and I want to see others maturing. And David writes Psalm 52 when he hears the news that Saul just found out from his chief shepherd that he went to the priest and he knows they're all going to die. It's a crying out to God. And what does, God, what does David do in that desperation? He goes back to simple facts. God is sovereign, God is supreme, and God is steadfast in his love for us. And these are the themes that we have seen. We started out with Hannah this morning in desperation, crying out to God. And we see her view of God is so beautifully written in her prayer. And then we end and we find David as we, as we continue on in 1 Samuel in a moment of desperation, crying out to God in his brokenness. So in many ways, as we wait for what is to come, we live in this right now. God's anointed us. We, we have an opportunity to do amazing things for him. But we live in a fallen world. And it's a broken world. And it's not always going to be easy. We're all fugitives in some way. But we're not running from something. We're running towards something. We're running towards the prize of the high calling that God has called us to. And that is an amazing blessing. So thank God this morning. As, as you ch- We're going to sing in just a second. And this, and this is what a thought I want you to have. Thank God. That we have a heavenly father who remains sovereign, supreme, and steadfast for us as we journey this world. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you for the power of your word, God. Uh, as, we, as we continue on through 1 Samuel, God, we look back at just the amazing themes and things that we have learned on this journey, God. It has been such a joy to see your word come to life. So would we be faithful in the day in and day out? God, may it not just be a Sunday morning we come here and, and hear... Brian Babylon, God, but that we would just be in the word, pursuing it each day, God. Um, refresh us. Help us to, to take time this week just to reflect on Psalm 52 as we rejoice in the fact that you are steadfast, that you're sovereign, God, that you're working all things together for your purposes. We have such a freedom in that this morning, that you are working in and through us for your glory. God, for those of us that are struggling to bring you glory, and there's a lot of self-glory out in this world, we're tempted every day to bring ourselves glory. I pray, God, that you would change us, shape us, mold us, that we would be all about your kingdom and all about your glory. Help us to continue to learn at your feet through the rest of this series, God, in your name, amen.